You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm very pleased to be talking to a brilliant comedian, a very fabulous, very warm person and uh, someone who wears her heart on her sleeve and uh, as a result of some, uh, a little kind of a catch-up, Shappy and I hadn't seen each other for a while. Uh, so just before this was recorded, we had uh, a really lovely piece of toast <laughs> and, uh, and an equally lovely, uh, quite in-depth chat about life and where it's all going. So uh, that's, you know, I just don't want you to think that the fact that we leapt right in at the deep end at the start of this uh, is due to any other reason than we were getting along famously and, uh, and were already at, uh, we, we hit the ground running as soon as we hit record. So ladies and gentlemen, this is the absolutely fabulous Shappy Corsandi. I've always described stand-up comedy as um, my second chance at the playground and my yellow brick road. Um, I've always seen it as a yellow brick road that no matter what, no matter what failure, what pain, what humiliation, what doors are slammed in my face, I will stay on this road and not veer away from it. And I feel lucky that I had that feeling because I think you need to have that feeling to um, make a living from something that you you can't, you can't not do. It's it's a compulsion, isn't it, stand-up? Yeah, it? I think so, yeah. It's a compulsion. And um, when I don't do it for a while, I'm horrible. Like, I went to Myanmar with my partner and my kids... And when I came back, I mean, it was amazing. I went to Myanmar, flipping egg. We, I just saw incredible things. I've, I've not really travelled um, unless it's with stand-up yeah. and doing overseas gigs. Yeah, weird, isn't it? You feel like you've got, oh, God, I've seen the world. And you go, did you? Or yeah. did you just see a dressing room somewhere saw, remote? You, yeah, <laughs> Absolutely. That, that's it. Nail on head. And, and we went to Myanmar, and my boyfriend is, a, is um, one of those committed backpacker types that doesn't feel he's been on a journey unless he's on a rickety bus with a with a chicken on his lap you know that kind and we did all that and and i was like oh i get it i get the traveling bug i get it need to go home now and do comedy thank you yeah (laughs) yeah. thank you very much other cultures thank you so much thank you for the for the opportunity i need to and i was yeah and i came back and i had a bit of a yeah because we were away for quite a while 
well, two two weeks, which is a long time. <laughs> I don't, a long time when you're an addict. Yeah, yeah it, it, absolutely. It was a long time away from... I, I just started to get really over-enthusiastic with people we met in Myanmar. Um, and before I did stand up, I was a lot more gregarious socially. You know, I was the first to arrive at a party, last to leave. Um, and over time, I, I realised that whatever that need was, was sated by by the job and when I got married it was almost awkward because that year I got married in 2006 and that was my breakthrough year where I did a show that hit um, Mm. that worked in Edinburgh called Asylum Speaker and it was the first time that I'd got loads of press that people were talking about me it was my first time so when I got married it felt like sorry everyone it was awkward because I thought I'm now asking everyone to look at me for a whole day and so I was kind of quiet on my wedding day because I felt like it, it just doesn't seem like a very British thing that all summer in Edinburgh you've been like, da-da! And, and now you're standing there in a big frock and people have to look at you again. It was, it was, it was interesting. Well, because you were being a different self I just, at your wedding to the self you were... I, I don't quite understand how you mean. I, I mean, it felt very, very self-indulgent. Like, I look at my friends who aren't performers and they go to town with their wedding days. I see. And I realise, of course, because this is your day. That's your time to shine. Um, But every time we step on a stage, it's our time to shine. Obviously, sometimes we don't shine at all. Sure, but that's the the hazard of the trade. You can always trip up. They still clap, even if it's grudgingly. (laughs) You can still trip up walking down the aisle or something. So it felt felt, um, in you know like birthdays and stuff are quieter now because I I think look my job is all about me 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 it it just feels a bit crass to then go and I want this special day when I have a big cake and all of you have to bring me presents just felt a bit like that yeah so what do you what are you getting out of the experience of being on stage going me 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 is it that you are and obviously this you know to any comic you're going to get a, a thousand different things yeah but is it that you are when you when you said before, you come from um, you know you, your yellow brick road allows you a place where there is no you know, I don't I forget your exact words but there's no kind of bullying or insults or, or humiliation or stuff like that no veering off the road yeah so so did you were were you attracted to the idea of performing because you were coming from a place of feeling humiliated or bullied or insulted. Yeah, well, we all to an extent. What we all to an extent. I know. I know that it's, it's a stereotype of comics that you feel like the outsider, but I really did. Um, starting from being tiny, being the being the second child of a very funny, um, um, second child of a very funny uh, dad, a very famous dad uh, in Iran, and um, and having an older brother who was only 16 months older than me so not enough of a gap for me to have much of my own identity and I was like a little duckling just following my big brother around I, I didn't make friends easily because my brother made friends and then his friends would be forced to take me on too um I just followed my brother around and also him and his friends are sometimes mean to me you know when we hit started to hit adolescence I then I was fat, you know, I got the nickname Incredible Bulk. Um, I was a sort of, what is it? Someone someone wrote on Facebook the other day, um, pull a pig. Boys that play pull a pig in 
pubs and stuff, like okay. come and chat you up as a joke. Jesus. So I okay. had that done to me um, when when I got to my teens, and and just yeah, guys pretending to fancy me and then laughing and. Um, you know, never being one of the cool kids, uh, never being invited to the parties. Um, and looking back on it all, it, it can't have been that the world was against me. There was something perhaps about my ego that made it all about me to an extent, because what I realize now is I constantly put myself in situations where people were unkind to me. There were people that were very kind, but perhaps I didn't have the, perhaps I thought less of them because they were nice to me, because that's a self-esteem thing, isn't it? It's like, you're very nice to me, therefore you're an idiot because you value me. What a twat, because I'm a, I'm, you know, what am I? You know, why you, and I look back on all that now and I remember it for my children I remember it because I had a friend when I was very little, right up until she moved to America when I was 14, that she would systematically bully me and every dad begged to go to her house again. And now with my children, I think, why do you want to invite so-and-so around? Every time he's around you round, no. No, invite another kid that's, that's nice to you. And I'm really aware of that, like your friends. And way into my adult life, I realised I made friends like with people who I actually weren't terribly nice and were mean to me and weren't good at friendship and I've had to see actually these people are good at friendship these people are good I'm going to go with these people they might be quieter they might be less exciting on the surface but I've been shallow out of um, some kind of insecurity in that I've wanted to be with the exciting people the ones that dance on the tables the loudest ones at uni the most flamboyant ones but they're not the ones that are there for you in a crisis you know um so I think with stand-up when I say it was my second chance at the playground uh it's my second yeah it's my chance of being in charge and and enjoying that and I'm giving you a really long answer. It's a great answer. It's I think a really it's, long answer. I think it's really insightful to, to be able to look back at your past and go, yes, maybe those issues that I had with the world were the result of choices I'd made. I, I think that, and I don't know if I, I feel like this has been in my head a lot recently. So apologies to you, the listener, if you've heard me say this on a recent episode. Um, but I think that what I regard as my really awful school days I chatted to one of the few friends I've stayed in touch with since then recently. And, uh, and he said, no, no, I, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. It was a water off a duck's back. It was great. And, and that really made me go, whoa, in, in a way that I hadn't kind of uh, thought about before. It made me go, how can someone who had near as damn it the same experience as me not have regarded the school we went to as this awful place that crushed people's yeah, hopes? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah you know? absolutely. And actually, I think it was to do with um, my reactions to things and my inability to ask for help. So I Absol- developed this, oh, this groove of you got pretending it. I knew what was going on and then being very loud and confident that I knew what was going on and I didn't. And- you got it. It's that inability to ask for help, that shyness and saying, I'm not I'm not doing well here. And I learned to do that, to ask for help quite late, late, much later on in life. This, this, this learning that you have, this insight that you have into that that version of the story of you as a kid is that something you have happened upon yourself through your thinking or your writing or is it the result of like therapy or you know nlp or long chats with 
you know, a, a kind of mentor or something like that. Because I, I, I feel like it, for me, it's therapy. It's like years and years of therapy and then finally finding the right guy for me who made me go, oh, oh, actually, when you look at it like that, oh, yeah, you know, being led mm. towards a discovery rather than having someone go, it, it was probably this. Yeah, NLP. It was NLP. Yeah. I, do you know what? No, that's really fascinating. Okay, so this is, I know, I know next to nothing about it. I interviewed Jimmy Carr recently. He mentioned it. It's come up once or twice. And even yeah. as I said it then, I thought, oh God, they're going to think I'm obsessed. No, but how funny. It's changing your thinking. And then I had CBT. Um, last year I had, um, I, I had to have lots of things because I had a bit of a break down. I say that very slowly. I got. Um, <laughs> Are you saying that slowly out of deciding whether or not you want that to be known? Yeah, yeah but I'm not going to ask you to edit this because I, sure. I know you're really busy. You've got a new baby. <laughs> I'm not going to put that on you. That's but very no, much appreciated. But it, but it was. Um, I went to see um, a cognitive behaviour therapist and I went to see um, post traumatic stress disorder um, therapy and. And the thing is, it was there wasn't like a light bulb moment with, with any of this. And I, I turned forty three yesterday, so a lot of this is growing older and being able to look at the bigger picture. And that um, all the therapy that, I, and also I'm really crap at therapy. I sort of had this incredible therapist, but she had to leave London, and I never got another one. You know, it's like everything else in my life, I leave so many things half done, um, unfinished, um, and having children really made me look at the bigger picture getting divorced um broke me in ways that i have never been able to describe creatively in any of my stand-up i should never have done jokes about it i think the third live at the apollo that i did i was in such incredible pain i should not have done it i should have been in a sanatorium somewhere <laughs> um and i learned defeat and it was, I learned it kicking and screaming. Like, I think when my marriage broke down, it was the first time in my life where I had to accept failure. It's taken me years to accept it. But all of it, all of that experience has enabled me to think, well, either I curl up and die or I, I look at, I see the bigger picture. Um, and yeah, I have had mentors. I've had incredible, um, friendships with people that I, I wasn't able to have before um as I mentioned I made, I made bad choices in friendship and then I had this I sort of woke up a little bit and I made good friends and I had an amazing conversations weirdly with men I never used to make friends with men very easily um unless I wanted to sleep with them I, I, I now sound like like a big sexist with, with a arse crack hanging out sorry if I <laughs> if I sound like that but um I think having an older brother who te I love my brother dearly um he was my hero he is my hero but he teased me relentlessly growing up and so did his friends so I think I've I found men oh teasing I don't like teasing that's why I don't like panel show I'm not very good on panel shows because I'm like oh you we were all getting on in the green room and now you're teasing me <laughs> I don't mm. like it um but then I made friends with sensitive men and and nice men and who taught me things and and um, made me realise uh, that things could be okay, you know, and so that yeah, I did have mentors, I think, yeah. And 
and the NLP stuff that you did, you mentioned, and we, we sort of not explored that any further. Is that something are you happy to talk about? Your, yeah, the, I, the depth of your involvement in that because well, it's something that I'm very, I'm kind of, I for me always the name is terrible, and yeah. it always made me think of like, oh, it sounds a bit Scientology. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, if it was called visualizing stuff in a sort yeah. of non-threatening way yeah. to realize actually what you actually want rather than what you think you want. Yeah. You know, if there was a word for that, I might go, oh yeah, I might have got, in, got interested in it a long time ago. Yeah, neuro-linguistic programming, for me, and cognitive behavior therapy, um, for me, allowed me to see that I had choices in my thinking. I didn't know I had choices in my thinking. And you cannot think that way. And thinking that way makes you feel this way. You don't want to feel that way. So change your thinking. I'm not a religious person. In fact, I'm the president of the British Humanist Association. I quipped earlier on. Is yeah. that like being the Pope for atheists? It is. I'm going to repeat it then because I, am, I thought it was I funny. I am chief human. <laughs> um, chief human. Touch me and your first one will be a boy. Um, <laughs> no, it's... Um, the, the Zoroastrian faith, which is what um, all Iranians come from, uh, was the first monotheistic religion. And I'm not one for religion, but I love the... Um, the, the premise of the religion is good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. And that is the CBT triangle, you yes, know? Yes, right. And that's also, I did, um, I never finished my 12 steps, but I'm constantly in a 12-step program. Okay. Um, and all of that hugely is to get rid of stinking thinking, get rid of your your the negative thoughts that drag you down. And I learned that it's no accident that my career... I, I had a career in 2006 because I started going to a 12-step program and I woke up, you know, I, in all of my 20s, I was in an utter fog of um, addiction. And um, is it, Are you alluding to alcoholism specifically? Um, eating disorders okay, gotcha. and, and binge drinking, but, you know, without boring to death about uh, with... with um, recovery speak alcohol sure. wasn't my primary addiction I my gotcha. primary addiction was um, eating disorder uh, i once talked about this publicly and then and then someone re- mentioned it randomly in an interview the thing is when you talk about addiction or anything like that like i don't know how russell brand handles every interview they say so you were a heroin addict mm. and i i think he's really strong in his recovery because the, the danger is if you talk about the addiction you had, it's like, fine now, because I'm okay, but I relapse a lot. And I was on Five Live, and the, we were talking to um, a woman who self-harmed, and I couldn't speak because I couldn't pretend that I didn't know her thought process. And the presenter looked at me and wrote on a piece of paper, because she was like, whoa, this is heavy, said, say something. And so I said to the caller, I said, um, I know what this is like for you and I from my own personal experience blah 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 and the presenter said what is your personal experience Shappy and I said well I'm chronically bulimic and I was locked in an eating disorder from the age of 15 to the age of 32 and we spoke about it and that was the first time I did it publicly I felt like I'd come out it was a really important moment for me and the presenter sort of wrote me a note and said you're so brave and they all came and gave me hugs afterwards about a year later, the same presenter was interviewing a load of comedians at the Edinburgh Festival. Completely different vibe. You know, mm. we were in a beautiful sunny day in this BBC box, all giggling and laughing about our shows. And suddenly, out of nowhere, she went, So, Shappy, you're bulimic. 
how are you coping with that in Edinburgh? And she pulled the rug out from under my feet. It was horrible. And I realized, God, I've made myself so vulnerable because I don't want, I don't want people asking me about it whenever they like. Mm. Um, so that's why I'm not going to tell you that my addiction was a food related bulimia. I was absolutely, I lost my twenties to bulimia. So I don't, I don't want to tell you that. Okay. Uh, and I real and I relapse and, and the, the thing is about it is that I, I don't like trying to explain addiction or my disease to anyone who doesn't get it. It's not for anyone else to get. You know, I've had people going, yeah, but you're not fat. Or we all feel, we all feel like we over it. Oh, I'm like that sometimes. I think, oh, I wish I could puke it all out. You don't get it. And that's okay. It's not my job to explain it to you. But I will say it took me years and years, a stupid amount of my adult life to realise that throwing up was the tip of the iceberg. I, I thought that was the problem. That was the thing itself. Yeah. Rather than a symptom. Absolutely. Gotcha. And then I went, oh, I see what's happening here. I don't know where one meal begins and, the, and another one ends. I had no idea when, um, when to stop drinking, when to stop eating. And I was never in a place where I had any clarity. So, of course, I had fucked up relationships. Of course, I made friends with people who harmed me because that's my whole life was was self-harming and um yeah so and 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 uh, and I was trying to make it as a stand-up what a fool I mean um not a fool <laughs> that's negative why, why, why do you say that why do you say what a fool because the idea of of becoming a stand-up itself is so was so impossible to you absolutely and and also um it's such a vulnerable place to put yourself in like I would like I look, like I'm, I'm friends now with comedians like, um, you know, like Sarah Pascoe and all those guys, and I'm, I love them, and I have a slight envy as well because when I was starting out, I was so locked in bulimia, it it muffles all communication with the outside world, and I didn't know how to make friends with other comedians the way I can now. So even though I love it and I'm, I feel so blessed and I just adore pretty much every comic I feel sad for myself that I wasn't able to make these connections and have the this um this support and uh, when early on I was just locked away in my own fog um and and I I have to work hard not to beat myself up about that loss. And in fact, I wrote a book, my, my book. Um, thanks for mentioning it. It's, uh, (laughs) we, we were going to get to it. (laughs) Well, I was, because obviously it's about a young girl with a, with, 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 yeah. I don't want to give anything away. (laughs) It's, it's, it's about an 18 year old alcoholic. And my book hugely is my way to create, creatively salvage some of my own youth to say it was all worth it because I wrote this. You know, it's kind of... I didn't want to make my 20s a total waste of time. But it, none of it was a waste of time. Of course it wasn't. So this is Shappy. Now, before I forget, I've got to tell you, her book, Nina Is Not Okay, is released on the 28th of July. Um, I don't remember on... I, I think at the time when she mentioned her book, I said, oh, God, I've not read it. And she said, no, that's okay, it isn't out yet. Which, as an interviewer, is the best gift any guest can give you is, no, no, you could not have done that research. Um, but I've, I've read loads of the advanced press. Have a little look on uh, on Amazon or wherever, the, uh, wherever these reviews are aggregated. She sent me a link to something. But just everyone properly going fine 
five star mental over it so do look at that if you're interested in uh, in any of the things that we're uh, that we're talking about um lots of really good stuff from shappy i mean a real you know she's so just immediately opened so uh, i'm really grateful to her for being so honest and um and even i think there is one bit in this uh, interview where she says right don't say this and then you know don't don't release this bit and then we talk ourselves round to yes it's fine so don't listen to this thinking uh <laughs> don't listen to this thinking she said don't release it and Stu did it's all been cleared we're all good on that subject thank you so much to a listener called oliver who correctly identified that i had accidentally put up a logging copy e.g a, a pre-edit pre-release copy of a forthcoming episode uh, onto the soundcloud page and he said i don't think you wanted to release this release this and uh, i had to run downstairs to my laptop and immediately i just hadn't ticked the right box that said private so thank you very much oliver and uh, I suppose I shouldn't really be telling you any of this. What I've effectively said is, hey, keep an eye on the SoundCloud account because occasionally I drop stuff that isn't supposed to be released yet. Um, but according to the SoundCloud stats, only 26 people had listened to it, of which we can assume a, a reasonable number are spam bots of LA DJs. So um, more from Shappy shortly. I thought I'd read you an email that I got from a, a listener called Will, who is in Qatar. Um, and I just like the spirit of this. He said, I finally got around to setting up a payment uh, in the comedic and cultural, <laughs> that is Doha. Uh, your podcasts are a complete pleasure, he says. The realisation that I pay for Netflix and not for your podcast was the final motivating factor. Well, thank you, Will. If you're interested in supporting for this show, you can uh, you can do that with a recurring subscription payment uh, similar to the Netflix model, uh, only in that it's a donation and... Uh, I don't guarantee anything and you don't guarantee anything and you just give me a pound a month or two pounds or even five if you're a total legend um, so thank you for those that have thanks everyone that's donated recently there's been some uh, some very kind donations coming in from uh, I'll, I'll, I'll shout some names at you because I've got them here thank you to people recently including John Laking Christelle Cushot uh, Alex Alan, John Carrington uh, someone else on there the list has run out but you know lots of people have been um, supporting with either uh, tiny little uh, recurring donations or the occasional one-off if you want to be one of those absolute magnificent bastards and I use that term about both genders uh, who wishes to pay me a pound an episode or 50p an episode I mean we are on episode 171 now so you know, I mean, good for you if you can. But uh, equally, someone, uh, I won't go into details here, someone who I know can't afford it gave me a pound an episode. And I'm enormously grateful, but I will never spend that money in case this person asks for it back. So um, if you are someone who doesn't have much money, that's fine. Let's do the bottle of wine thing. You can support the show if you like it. If you if you feel it's made a positive uh, contribution to your life, you can donate me by going to comedianscomedian.com forward slash donate just as much as you would spend on a bottle of wine. That seems like a reasonable donation at this stage. If you can afford more, then by all means get stuck in. Thank you for your feedback on the Russell Howard episode. It's it's the episode which has probably had the most other comedians, fellow comedians, texting and Facebooking me and going, "Oh my God, what a belter!" So that's really nice too. And uh, I've had a lot of uh, a lot of very good feedback from you recently. It's interesting to me, I suppose, when certain episodes go out, I can get a sense of the f- the flavour of them by 
how many people get in touch and what sorts of uh, conversations they're having. <laughs> a couple of people emailed to sort of say, I hope Liam Williams is all right. He is all right. He's just like that. Um, a lot of people emailed in to say, a lot of people, I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, after the Seymour Mace episode, I got a lot of men emailing to say, thank you for talking honestly about depression. Uh, because I do think, without wanting to make too sweeping a generalisation, I, I do think men and women are socialised differently men don't tend to talk as much about their feelings and I certainly felt from the the tiny non-scientific anecdotal group of emails that I received that seemed to to bear that out that a lot of men were going oh yeah thanks I, I, someone even got in touch and said thank you I feel like this as a result of listening to this I'm going to get some help um, they were exclusively men that wrote in to say that so that's all the science you're getting at this point but I, I'm inordinately grateful thank you for letting me know and um, maybe hey this is I don't know if you should do this sort of thing but maybe if you know someone who you suspect is depressed but is unwilling to diagnose it what you could do is get them hooked on the oh this sounds very I didn't mean this in a marketing way I genuinely I've thought about doing things like this for people before you could get them into the podcast and then recommend ones and then go oh what about the Seymour Mace one and then you might be able to have a conversation but um I say that purely from the point of view of wanting people to get better i hope i hope i hope you don't think i would stoop to stealth marketing under the guise of uh, <laughs> pseudo therapy um any more than my entire existence in the last five years appears to have been that that's all of that um the russell howard extras of course are still available all of the extra content from previous episodes are all available at comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras and uh, thanks to those of you who've been downloading that and joining the mailing list you never know I, I guarantee you between now and the Edinburgh Festival, I pledge to release at least one uh, mail out. So don't feel that uh, adding yourself to the mailing list is going to result in any sort of deluge. It, it's basically going to be two a year. Um, thank you for joining the Facebook group. Those of you that have, I now have. I've got some great episodes in the can now. I've got John Robbins. I've got Todd Barry. He's in the can. Wendy Wason. She's in the can. Uh, Jinx Monsoon, of course, still to release. I think I'll bung that one out next week. And uh, a couple of more, a couple more bookings. I always want to tell you about the bookings, but I'll, I'll keep them to myself for now, just in case they do or don't happen. I'll chat to you more at the end of the episode. So all there is now uh, to say is to remind you that I'm going to be at the Edinburgh Festival doing a show called Compared to What. It's my new stand-up show. It's going to tour nationally uh, in spring of next year, but uh, you can come and see it at the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, it's free bring money it's at 3 45 p.m daily at the liquid room annex which is just off cowgate if you know edinburgh um it's in all the you know the various uh what are they called brochures and guidelines and drawn on people's foreheads as they walk past and i may even employ a team of students who appear to be doing godspell and on day three are advertising by pretending to be naked hiding behind a banner but actually it turns out they're all secretly advertising for me yeah, I mean, I, I will never get around to that, but there it is. So get yourself up to Edinburgh. And if you don't, this is, I might just generally advertise the concept of the Edinburgh Festival, if you'll permit me for 30 seconds. It staggers me that the biggest arts festival in the world is comparatively on the doorstep of a lot of people here, a lot of people uh, in the UK. And I mean, loads of people, millions of people go to it, but so many people haven't. Maybe this is your year. Just go for a weekend. Just go midweek if you can blag a couple of days off work. You'll probably need to camp out of town because the, all of the accommodation has now gone. Um, but just get up there for a couple of days. Stay on someone's floor. I can't have you all around mine. I've got a baby now. Um, but uh, it's just 
mind-blowing and if you just pop up there this festival for a day or two you'll go oh my god it's this i mean it, it just absolutely unpeeled my head when i was 16 years old and i haven't missed one since so get yourself up there i'm on at 345 daily and i will throughout edinburgh on the facebook group be mentioning uh, lots of shows about which i'm excited so uh, there's plenty of them already but uh, we'll wait until nearer the fringe to do those now let's get back to the brilliant shappy corsandy <laughs> I'm aware that when I was an early stand-up, um, when I was just getting into it, I kind of, I, I had another group of friends. I had my busking gang and I was yeah. like, I'm, I'm, I feel safe with these people. Yeah. So at Edinburgh, I would often hang out with them as opposed to a lot of the comics. I remember and, that. Yeah, do you? Yeah, I remember yeah. you had your, your sort of street Yeah, there was I quite like my dirty, dirty ragtag yes. Baker Street Irregulars, you yeah. know. And, uh, and that was great and I loved it and I don't regret that time spent mm. with them, but I do regret that I didn't kind of plunge myself as... Yeah immediately into the stand-up community and yeah. I'm just wondering about I, I, I just felt like I really appreciate you saying that because I think that's like it's something I, I kind of like no I, I make myself a bit vulnerable if I say that but mm. I think there will be lots of comics every so often I don't know if you get this I'll get um like a Facebook message from another comic who I don't know all that well but probably mm. if we did a tour together for a week we'd go oh we really get on yeah. you know but you don't necessarily have those opportunities every so often you just get a little message going oh I heard what you said about so and so thinking of you yeah and you go oh yeah that's good yeah yeah absolutely it's it is really lovely and then you I don't know what part of it is a part of it is I, I went to see uh, where did I go to see I went to see Sarah uh, Pascoe the other day um, at the Soho Theatre and there was a gang of us it was like me Wendy Wason Catherine Ryan and Jess Foster Q. and I was having such a great night such a great time and I thought why didn't I have this at 26 when I could really have done with these female friendships or friendships you know and I realised well for one thing there, there were fewer women there and for another thing I was locked in my fog. Fewer female comics when you were 26, yeah, you mean? Yeah, oh, okay. fewer female comics when I was 26. And a really weird thing happened to me that I've only recently told um, people, but for ages I was so paranoid. You know that paranoid feeling where you think, oh God, everyone hates me? I don't know if you're familiar with that feeling. But... Um, which is quite an egotistical feeling to have because it's like to why imagine they're even thinking they're, about to you. imagine yeah, they're even thinking about you you know um but i when i first um started stand up i mean this doesn't really matter but i happened to have only have slept with two people in my entire life right when i was 23 or something and i did a comedy course Oh, I don't, I don't want to betray any confidence. I, I don't want to make anyone look bad 20 years on, 20 odd years on. But I got a phone call from someone. So I'm a brand new, fledgling comedian, bright eyed, not very bushy tailed. Um, and then there's slightly older female comedians. And I'm thinking, hey, they'll be nice to me. And they were not nice to me. And then I got a phone call saying, just to let you know, you're getting a reputation on the circuit for being a bit of a slut. I was like, What? well there's a rumor going around that you flirt a lot with the male comedians and the other girls don't like it now if i had the self-confidence that i do now i would have torn that person that called me up to give me that little bit of poison and you asshole right there was no need for me to know that information but i didn't i went oh no for a decade i thought oh my god who is it who's been talking about me years later I find out that there was a rumour going round that I was sleeping with Dylan Moran. 
to this day, Stuart, I have never seen him in the flesh. I've never <laughs> met Dylan Moran. I have never seen... But some something or other happened where some rumour started a- about me. And this is the days before internet, right? <laughs> oh, a real rumour. A real rumour. that Oh, yeah, she's such a, you know, she's such a climber. She's bonking Dylan Moran. And I was, you know, I was really in like innocent isn't the right word but I was really um, naive back then and I just went into a shell even more and so it didn't seem like a friendly place but now it just seems a lot more friendly but again that's because of my confidence like if someone's negative towards me now I won't have it but back then I'd put them in an elevated position and I'd give them power it's almost an incredible that rumor is a very kind of Mallory Towers rumor isn't it that's like <laughs> no. a, do you know what I mean that's like a girl's school that that is taking comedy which should be all of our escape from school and turning it right back into fucking school again absolutely absolutely and um but then I, I look back on that time and I think I was drinking just like a crazy lunatic. <laughs> You're um, about to say, I may have fucked Dylan Moran. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I did not. He is hot though, but I've just Ooh. never been in, in the same room as him in my life to this day. Um, and, and I just sort of look back on that and I just see it as perhaps petty jealousies, pe- people wanting to shoot someone down. And I see it now. I see it now when, um, you know... Um, there's a couple of newer male comedians that I've that have confided and they're doing, I don't want to mention any names here, mm. but are doing really brilliantly now. Confided with me on Facebook that, oh, he'd gone to this gig and, and this sort of such and such comic had been really nasty to him. And I wrote back saying, mate, you've ruffled feathers. You're obviously good. You're obviously, people see something in you and you're ruffling feathers and people are scared that you'll leave the sludge. And they want to yank you back down again and be mindful of that. And then you will learn who is your friend and who isn't. You've got to know your enemy. And, you know, God, I wish I had a friend like me when I started. <laughs> but I know, I know some journalists will, will listen to this and sure. go, can you write an article for blah, blah, blah magazine about my bulimia hell? Um, I had to, to promote my book. They asked me to, um, a couple of, um, you know, very quality uh, women's magazines asked me to write about... Um, my own personal experience of bulimia and um talking about it is fine but i think don't quote me i think it was socrates that said the written word has no father i love that you can't once you've written something down it's gone and you know and people don't hear your intonation people don't hear your thought process well they do but um you can't stand up for it once it's gone but with talking you can i feel more comfortable talking about personal things than writing about them so i had to not write them and and maybe i'll sell a few less books (laughs) but not making myself as vulnerable so were there attempts then to deal with things like the bulimia or things like the rumor or you know what the difficult the more difficult aspects of your life like i i I think in terms of your material i think what you're most known for is material about family Mm. and material about kind of social politics and Mm. how we all get on and stuff like that was that were you did you make kind of overt writing about like i want to tackle this thing that's making me unhappy um i've done that before it's never worked I, I, I once um, tried to do some stuff about being bulimic and 
I went into massive relapse and I've learned no one needs to know you know I'll talk to you about it and everyone else who listens to the podcast but I don't that's not what I need to communicate to an audience because um it's something that I still battle and I still live with and I still I'm just not I'm just my recovery is not strong enough to do that it's like again talking about Russell Brand and other people who talk about it openly um, and brilliantly and bravely um, for me it's I may, maybe it's something oh, this, this is going to sound really horrific but I'm going to say it anyway but I think because bulimia is, is it's throwing up I think a lot of people just a, a turn like are turned off by the very idea mm. uh, of, of 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 trying to understand it or or see it as the same as sticking a needle in your arm or firing up a crack pipe but in terms of how it affects your life there's no difference whether it's booze whether it's crack whether it's sex whether it's um whatever you do to self-medicate numb yourself disconnect has a profound impact impact on your life, but because of the the very sort of visceral nature of bulimia, I think people don't even want to. It's a horrible image, you know. Not that you know, heroin's a pretty image, um, but there's just something about throwing up that it, it's not something that I can ever see myself communicating in any meaningful way about and when you when you said that's not what i need to be saying on stage mm. that's an interesting way of of phrasing that yeah what what is it that you need to be saying on stage i need to be saying things that help me make a connection with people the the, the kick i get from stand up is um being a, in a room full of people who on the surface have nothing in common with me but then finding a really human space of understanding one another um, and drawing them, and you would have heard every stand-up talking about this, I'm sure, drawing them into your world. And that understanding is what I strive to achieve. That connection, that connection is the golden place. It's the joyous place. It's the, it's the, it's the happy, it's the drug, that connection with, people that if I met on jury service I'd just go what um but but you end up loving each other a bit I can't not point out that literally no other comedian has ever said that oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's it may surprise you to know and particularly I one, one of the things I love about having these conversations is when people go oh I don't have a system and then they lay out their system <laughs> you know and they go well I'm sure everyone says this it's because of xyz and no one ever yeah. says that now, I mean I, I I feel like I'm quite similar to that myself I do mm. I think the kind of the the communion if I can use a, mm. a terribly non-atheist word that's fine um and I'm not religious myself, but I do think that shared, a shared joy, you know, mm. a shared experience. But of course, this is the crazy thing about stand-up, isn't it? To what extent are we sharing it? And to what extent are we kind of instigating it? Manufacturing. And, then, and common manufacturing ground. it and then, yeah. and then sucking it dry. Yeah, <laughs> you know? You're manufacturing common ground. Yep, there's that. Manufacturing common ground. Let's talk about that for a second because something I've noticed listening to your, your show recently that you sent me that copy of the Soho show, it strikes me, I'm not accusing you of manufacturing anything, but it strikes me that your position in relation to an audience 
is really charmingly fluid. Like sometimes you're low status and sometimes you're high status and then you kick yourself back down and sometimes you're... Do you know what I mean? And that, that to me is maybe an example of, of like you are, you are exceptionally good at finding common ground with people, and that's a charming phrase, with people that you might be surprised to do jury service with. It's my, it's my raison d'etre. It really is. Um, it's something I've been um, obsessed with from as long as I remember being alive, like like every single human being on the planet, I will fucking understand them if it kills me. I've always had this this really profound uh, desire to um, manufacture common ground <laughs> with everybody. I don't why, know. Why is that? Is that so that you can stop them humiliating you? Or is it is that from the same sort of... It relieves me. It's like bloodletting. And it frustrates me when I can't do it. And so that's the gorgeous thing about stand-up. If you fuck it up, you go back again the next night and you do it again. And it sates me. It sates something in me. Sometimes I think it might have um, something to do with um, this idea of being isolated. Um, and massively addiction is self-isolation right and um, this feels ugly this feels painful but it's familiar so I shall stay here that that's addiction right um that's part of addiction and I don't want people going that's your experience of addiction not anyone else's right yeah that's a framework of looking at addiction yes um my auntie Nadia um who's upstairs um she and I, my brother, are more or less the same age. And I remember being in Iran. One of my memories of Iran was my uncle gave my auntie Nadia, who would have been about uh, five, and my brother, who would also be five, and me, who would have been three and a half, four, a camera each to play with. And their cameras worked. Mine was broken. It was just a hollow shell. And I remember my brother saying, Shappies is broken. And my uncle saying, ah, she's little. She won't care. I never forgot that. And I remember crying, but not being able to articulate why. It's like, she won't care. She doesn't matter. (laughs) That feeling never left me. And then we moved to Britain when I was uh, almost four, three and a half, four. And I remember not being able to speak English. And I'm a talker. I like talking. And suddenly I was in a place where I couldn't speak the language. And I thought... Language because I didn't have the concept of language, I thought English was gobbledygook that people spoke and other people magically understood. So I would speak gobbledygook. And uh, this kid in my primary school said, I don't understand you. And I was like, What do you mean you don't understand me? I'm clearly saying, Do you want to go to the sandpit and play? And you're not understanding me, so I'm just gonna cry. I spent a lot of time crying a lot of time feeling misunderstood. I had that need to perform at an early age, and the teacher said, Everyone. Everyone uh, could sing a um, nursery rhyme at the end of class if they wanted to. And one day the teacher said, Chaparak, would you like to sing? And I got yes and no muddled up. And I said, no, but I meant yes, Stuart. And she goes, okay, not to worry. Sally, would you would you sing the song at the end of the... And I remember crying, going, I wanted to sing the song, but I don't know my yes and no, but I know Baba Black Sheep. I can sing Baba Black Sheep. <laughs> So um, all those things that were my ego being ignored. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Court, um, yeah. and being um left by the wayside you know going to to somebody's house where all the kids were playing in a room and I went to the loo and I came back and to be funny they'd locked the door so I couldn't get back in this room and I was knocking going oh dear they seem to have locked the door by accident hello and then I heard them all giggling going don't let her in don't let her in don't let her in and that stayed with me and weirdly this is she won't mind me saying this this is oh should i change her name okay this is a girl called victoria you don't need to know her surname this girl a girl called victoria who's older than me it was her house and she locked me out of this room and i would have been about eight or nine and i could hear them all her saying don't let her in i was so distraught i just sat with the grown-ups just silently crying just feeling like shit on someone's shoe Fast forward a million years, I'm at the Jonathan Ross show as a guest. Right? <laughs> I'm at the Jonathan Ross show as a guest, and this beautiful woman comes up to me going, Shafi, do you remember me? I'm Victoria Bloody Blah, and she worked on the show. And I instantly, the instantly went you locked me out of a door oh. when we were kids and you wouldn't let me play and it really and she was mortified because she's heaven on earth she's a wonderful person yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um and it's so lovely you know i i see her now i went round with my kids to her house for dinner <laughs> and it's really interesting it's just little flashes of my childhood where i felt in in a lot of ways fuel this this desire to connect because I was disconnected and always striving to and I have to say though now I'm you know right now I'm so relaxed about things like that like now when someone doesn't return my phone call or doesn't invite me to a party I go oh well they're busy mm-hmm. you know geez I, I had a party the other day I forgot to invite like really close friends of mine just because I'm an idiot and really disorganized and the 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 joy of nothing keeping me awake at night no niggling insecurities keeping me awake at night it's, it's a sweet freedom <laughs> that, <laughs> that I've, I've really only had since I've been in um, 12-step recovery so does stand-up comedy and let's talk about the difference between stand-up and writing your book does mm. it does it it sounds like from, from, from the conversation we've had thus far it sounds like stand-up cures or has cured or alleviates temporarily perhaps <laughs> All of your issues. Is that true? Um, no. 
It doesn't, but it it gives me. But the way to feel about it was that like, like now now I tour, so it's longer. But on the circuit, it was twenty minutes where I didn't have to deal with anything but that twenty minutes. And now when I do my tour shows, you know I've got two little kids, I'm a single mom. In that hour and a half. No one can call on me for anything. It is my time. What I find about stand-up now, and I literally, this has been in the last two years. So if you think I've been doing this for 17 years, in the last two years, I feel that I'm finally becoming creative with it. Like I'm finally bringing my heart into it. Whereas before it was such a, such a battle with a lot of stuff like now it's become my fun and my 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 emotions are my confidence has soared and it's given me the freedom to bring my emotions out in it which has made it better and it feels more creative it feels a lot more creative rather than my need it's it's letting go of your ego learning to let I haven't let go of my ego but learning to do that more and more makes me funnier and better at my job i think um i saw um dr brown have you seen dr brown many times he's been on the show great yeah he changed my life because um because he gives love he gives love whereas before i tried to take love and understanding that giving love is so much more satisfying as a stand-up. And I, I was one of those people uh, who was really snooty about you too, right? Bio <laughs> doesn't pay his tax, right? Okay. I went to see you two with my um, Bono-loving boyfriend and I got it. I got it. The man gives love. He gave love to... He made every single one of us in the O2 feel like we were special and then I because I, I watch singers a lot I think singing is incredible because they're not afraid of emotion I, I've always been like oh, I, don't, I don't want you to see my real emotions um, I went to see Prince last year I was lucky enough I can't say blessed because I'm president of the British Human Association <laughs> uh, to go and see him at Coco which is a really small intimate mm. venue in London and I was so close to Prince it was embarrassing it was almost like sorry Prince we're right up in your face <laughs> so try not to let it distract you and that man gives to his audience he gives and he gives and and, and what he got out of it was giving love to people and it's not a surprise that they're both deeply religious men. Prince was a deeply religious man, so is Bono. I'm not religious, but I um, I believe in people and I believe in loving one another under the, under the huge umbrella of friendship, whether you're a stranger or a friend. And tapping into that has been my journey in the last year. How do you do that as a stand-up? How do you, how do you give love as a stand-up when stand-up is so commonly, I don't understand this, I'm frustrated by this, these people did a, you know, these people should be ridiculed. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of negative, is, is that, mm. is, it, is it, what do you mean by giving love as a stand-up? How do you synthesise that? How do you do the, which, what I'm sure we all want to do as stand-ups is the equivalent of a long note 
in a song that we wrote that everyone knows, yeah. you know, when you, bah, you know, kind of belt it out. Like, we all want to do that. How do you, how do you incorporate that into a medium like stand-up? How do you start to? Look at children. Like, if you sit, I mean, you've, you, you, you I, I imagine you're the kind of person that's always really good with kids anyway. But kids are in the moment and kids don't hate. Kids don't hate. All kids want is for everything to be nice for everybody. Toddlers, they grow up a bit and tend to bastards. But, <laughs> but if you look at the way kids are, they stay in that moment. And everything in that moment is so important. Like, I'm looking at this, this jar of jam next to me. A, a, a little kid is fascinated by the very jamness of this jar of jam because all it cares about is this present moment and it lo- and it might love that jar of jam because that could be a toy that could be a plaything that could be something to to have an adventure with right and so this is might sound a bit fridge magnety um but it it's about letting go of hate even around things you hate that doesn't make sense, but I'm trying to make it make sense for me in my stand-up. Like, I used to get so... I, I still do. Like, I get so angry with... Um, no, angry is not the right word. I get so hurt by um, injustice in our government, for example, in our press. I get so hurt by it. And I used to meditate on that pain. And I used to dislike people who... Um, I used to be scared of people who um, had a point of view um, that, in my view, hurt other people. But then you learn that you can still have that opinion, but you can try and put yourself in their shoes and not hate them. And that is where love comes in. And that's where a, a manufactured common ground can come in, where you can say your point of view and you can be exactly who you are and say true to your principles without tearing someone down so viciously that it hurts yourself as you're doing it. I, I, I understand you. Could you give me an example of the difference between a bit of material from 10 years ago, maybe, and a bit of material from now that could illustrate what you're talking about? Okay, um... It's funny, I was watching, my boyfriend made me watch that. I don't like watching myself, but I watched a YouTube video of my asylum speaker show 10 years ago and I cringed. And he was going, it's not bad, you've moved on, but also comedy has moved on. Also society has yeah, moved right, on. Yeah, right, yeah. Society has moved on. That's why those jokes don't stand up anymore. At the time, it, you know, it, it hit a mark. It was zeitgeisty. It is not now. Um, so... You know, I had a a joke say um, all about how I um, my parents took me to brownies because they thought it was an, it was an after school club for Asian kids. Now nowadays, I don't think I would do a joke like that. Okay. Um, oh, oh God, it's horrible, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk about my past shows. <laughs> yuck, but yuck, I mean, with, with specifically with a view to like this discovery of I want to give love. Mm. So something from your current 
All right. So where, where, um, where you think this is a good example? I can't. Of... I can't give an example of a joke because I can't. I, I feel like a little bit of a rabbit in head, headlights. But for example, okay, I'll tell you. I got really, really upset with this proud to be English hashtag, right? Because I felt it excluded me, and I felt that it was deemed like. Um, Fuck it, let's say the cunt's name, right? Katie Hopkins. She wrote this horrible thing um, which demonises immigrants, demonises refugees, demonises our fellow humans, right? I don't even repeat it. You know, it's like the root of all racism is implying that another race or another people don't care about their children the way you do. Anytime you want to really dehumanize another people, you say they don't look after their kids, right? That's what I've noticed. And it made me angry and I had to deal with that. And it made me think, fuck you and the horse you rode in on. I'm more English than you could ever dream of being. This is my country. I have English values. Hashtag I'm proud to be English. And so my show this year is about how much I love this country and how... um how much I I love this geographical space that I was raised in and because uh, and I will no longer feel that I'm a guest here and I will no longer feel that people like her are natives or indigenous because if I check her DNA guaranteed she won't be because none of us are indigenous everywhere um and I think of that Woody Guthrie song, This Land Is Your Land, This Land Is My Land. And Billy Bragg did a beautiful cover of that where he changed the lyrics to This Land Is Your Land, This Land Is My Land, From the Coast of Cornwall to the Scottish Highlands. That's inclusive, that's love. That that's that's something that makes me feel like I belong. And no, I've spent so much of my life feeling that the bullies, the racists, the Britain first, the Katie Hopkinses, they are bullies and they, and they, they thrive on terror. They, they make their money. They feed their children from hate. And so I wanted to do a show about loving the place that they say doesn't belong to me. Is it possible to... to is it possible to do a show about love without needing to tether it to the reason you have to do a show about love because of these hateful <laughs> cunts? Hateful cunts. Yeah. I've, you know, I'm a massive contradiction. <laughs> I don't, I I don't mean, I'm not trying to disprove you at all. I think it's beautiful. But, uh, but you know, in, in talking to you now, um, my upset might come out and I'm not afraid of saying I find it hurtful I find it hurtful and that's okay because I'm human gosh you know if other people found things hurtful perhaps they'd be a bit more compassionate right that's probably possibly the most sanctimonious I've sounded <laughs> in a long no, time I, I get where you're coming from like it's okay to be hurt by this because it's awful yeah and being hurt by it reminds you that this is awful and that this you're awful. not yeah. one of the people who thinks it's fine to say this yeah, yeah. So, but then what I'm trying to do is understand, like, you know, at the moment we, we're in a situation in our country, and I love saying that, in our country, that um, when somebody, a normal person that has their own shit to deal with, has financial problems, um, has a concern about immigration, we scream racist in their face. And that's so damaging, because then that allows you know, the, the dementors 
as I call them, mm. to come and embrace those people. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas we could think a different way and, and, and listen to people and understand them and, and, and go, I completely get your, your point of view and that's, that's a really difficult situation for you to be in, but we're all in this together and, and let's go forward with hopefulness because ordinary people, normal people, don't want to hate their neighbour. They want to help someone that falls over in the street and hurts themselves, whatever colour or, or religion they are. But there's been a, um, a fake divide um, a division that doesn't exist between humans um, manufactured, which is mm. the opposite of my yeah. <laughs> manufacturing common ground. Yeah. Um, which I find a really frightening thing that's happening at the moment. And I feel, I guess I, subconsciously, because of my own background, I feel, I, I just, I never sit down and go, I'm going to write about this. I never do that. But that's what matters to me in my day-to-day life. That's what I worry about when I look at my children I think well especially because my kids one of them one of my children is totally English the other one is totally Iranian um Cassius my older son has a very very um close relationship with his very English father and my daughter although her father is also English her her biological um is also English but she's never met him um and she couldn't be more middle eastern and uh so i have this totally like oh mummy i do like potted beef i had some at nana's house <laughs> to my daughter who's like oh my god that's meat in a can that's so weird <laughs> and um and it's really interesting how things are going to pan out for them because i think perhaps she's going to identify a lot more with you know being she, she's darker as well because so much of this comes down to skin color do you know someone said to me the other day um that well you're not, you can't even be properly english because you weren't born here i was like all oh, right so i wasn't born here so i wasn't properly english okay well let me tell you that um i've now found out in that case that uh, one of my comedy heroes is actually a yemeni comedian called eddie Izzard because that's where he was born yeah. and uh, you know our, our celebrated indian actress joanna lumley Oh, no, but their parents are English. Oh, right. So what about our Irish friend whose parents are Irish, but he speaks English and identifies as being English? Oh, he's allowed to be English, isn't he? Why is mm. that? Yeah. Why is that left-wing liberal person that's telling me I'm not probably English? It's because, you know, skin colour. And it's not a pretty thing to talk about. And, and people think you have a chip on your shoulder, but there are certain realities about That's, it. I, I, I sometimes, I, one, one should never look at the YouTube comments, but, uh, yeah. or, you know, the comments under articles and stuff. But sometimes when I'm prepping for interviews like this, I mm. try and get a sense of how, so, yeah. how a comic's output is received. Yeah. And the, the kind of the most tiresome, if you can take something hateful and, and mm. only complain that it's tiresome, aspect of a lot of the criticism you receive from awful people yeah. is it's that same old thing that I'm sure is levelled at so many non-white comedians. Yeah. That's all she talks That's about. That's all she talks about. Yeah. I always think we'll stop looking at the same YouTube clip over and over again from 10 years ago. And, and that is, but that's what people want to see. And what they don't understand is that, mate, you don't like me. It's me you don't like. It's not my material. If I suddenly started talking about the fruit and veg section in the supermarket, you wouldn't suddenly think I'm brilliant. Yeah, you don't find another reason to hate you. Yeah, yeah. you know. Why does she just um, even talk about her race? Yeah, I know. <laughs> why does she talk about well, her, you know? Got, so, you know, it's like, why... And the thing is, I did hang myself from a hook quite early on 
because in my 20s I genuinely had an identity crisis about it because um oh god okay everyone not from London is gonna officially hate me now but until I did stand up I didn't travel around the country really except to go on you know holidays and stuff um and suddenly I was 25 in Leeds with, um, you know, comedy audiences who are all in their 40s. And I myself attributed my not connecting to a huge extent to the fact that most of my material is about being Iranian. But looking back, I was young. I hadn't found my voice yet. I hadn't found a, a way to feel comfortable in my own skin yet. Um, but I did talk about the Iranian thing a lot. And because that then started to work... And because I was so bloody bulimic, I was um, stuck in the mud and I I couldn't f- find any reason for people to be interested in me talking about anything else. Um, and I look back on that and, and I think I was I really was stuck in the mud uh, for a long time. I just felt if I talk about anything else, no one will like it. No one will like it. I'm the, um, and I had to um, get myself out of that. But it did stick, you know, it did because, you know, we've got the Internet now. We've got YouTube now. If people Google me, they'll find stuff. And to be perfectly fair as well, sometimes I do stuff on TV and they'd edit everything I said out apart from like one joke about being okay. Middle East. And that happened too. And again, you can't complain about it because I was on telly. I don't want to be on telly. Yes, and, and never, go, oh, they never... didn't. They didn't edit me well. Well, you know what? Get back to the fucking circu- um, circus. <laughs> Get back to the circus, you monkey. I mean, that is a whole other level of YouTube comment hate. Oh, my God. <laughs> you had a theory that... Um, uh, you for, for comic purposes, it might not be an actual mm-hmm. theory. We've talked about that. Um, about when men come up to you and go, I, norm- I don't normally find women funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but you were funny, which I think is a thing that a lot of people... Uh, As you say, women come up and say that. Yeah, right. They sure. think they're paying you the biggest compliment. Yes. Oh, so unusual. Yeah. Um, not unusual, completely usual. Yeah. Mind-blowing. But yeah, apparently it's so many... I've heard that from lots of different people. Um, you, you've... Um, I think the line was, you said, yes, because you have to be relaxed to laugh... And if, oh, this isn't the line, I'm butchering it. But the premise was when men complain about women comics, it's because, like saying women aren't funny. Hmm. Your angle was that that's because you have to be relaxed in order to laugh and you're not relaxed as soon as you see a woman on oh, stage. Oh, I forgot I say oh, that. what a great bit. It's a great oh, bit. Oh, damn it. I should listen to my own self more. <laughs> yeah, I said, you've got to be right. So if, you, if a woman comes on stage, you're like... Yeah, if you tense up and your neck swells. Yeah, yeah, you could, yeah, like it, like if you're lost and you're really frustrated behind the wheel of a car, someone can crack the best joke in the world, you're like, oh, fuck off, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, yes, there is that, there is that, and, and yeah, I must remember that. Um, and also, I remember starting stand-up and there were loads and loads of girls, women, um, in fact, on the open sports circus, and they, they disappear. I think my, my theory is that... Um, the rejection in stand-up when you die or when an agent says, oh, bugger off, I'm not going to manage you or the audience boo you off. Um, the onus is always on guys to put themselves forward. Like, they ask for pay rises more often because, and they, they approach women to chat them up, uh, to chat women up more often because that's the way our world is set up. And, um, 
and the rejection, like if a girl turns around to you in a nightclub and goes, I don't think so, fuck off, I'm with my friends, that guy will go out and chat another girl up. Whereas if, if a guy told me, fuck off, I'm not interested, I'm with my mates, I would cry and go home. It's, it's that being rejected and soldiering on, being rejected and soldiering on. And I think what I say is men can't do what we do when we feel rejected. They can't run off into the toilet and cry. And if they did, their friends wouldn't run in afterwards to reassure them that they're pretty. And I find that the ones that soldier on dying, dying, dying and continuing um, back when I started were more often the men. But I think women are just changing now. Culture changes. So blah, blah. Women in comedy. I mean, I, I, I really, uh, I really want to go. So, what's it like? But I, would, I would never, I wouldn't dream of doing that. <laughs> well, do you know, it's interesting now because it is. It's everyone's talking about it now, and I don't think there's a woman comic that doesn't talk about feminism in her show yep. now. Whereas for me, the race thing was such a big deal. I didn't realise that I was a woman comic for ages. <laughs> for ages, yeah. I didn't. It, I didn't compute. <laughs> that 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 might be an issue um yeah i i think part of the reason i I bring it up is it's it's a really you bit of material because it's Mm. or it's a really good example of a thing that you do very well which is that you take uh i mean your your punchline density is fantastic because you are very good at getting something that someone else might get five minutes out of boiling it down to exactly the point bang there's the punchline next bit do you think that's, that's fair? Oh, that's really interesting. What a positive way to look at it. Whereas I always see that as, you didn't mind that material. <laughs> <laughs> no. yeah. What have we learned? Comedians will never be happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I think you are. I think you're, you know, you get, that's a, that's a big topic you're talking about there, but you're yeah. not doing it, uh, I mean, although it's, it is done with lightness, you're not treating it casually. You're going, what's this about? What is going on? That is the perfect example. Yes, men do not follow each other into the toilets and go, are you all right? You know, don't worry, you're yeah. pretty. And that says everything you need to about the difference between two different, uh, you know, gender-based yeah. and constructed approaches to, to something. Damn and, clever. I, well, no, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're almost, it's like your jokes, they, they kind of... They they fit the form of a one-liner comic almost, or they kind of tend. You're, you're nearer that end of the spectrum. Yes, I each, am. Thank you for noticing that. Yeah. Oh, do you, okay. Why yeah. why does that make you happy to have that noticed? Oh, because I you know People I, don't I, spot that. I cut my teeth at Jonglers, and and I I used to be complimented on my one-liner capacity, like machine gun fire. Yeah. And then you start doing shows. And I still do that. And there's a snobbery that somehow, because you do one-liners and you're not being pithy and uh, whatever. Um, because you do stories, because you do longer bits, do you mean? I'm yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I, I think I, I, am a, I, am, I am a... I look at my... Like, I can't cope with a long story without rat-tat-tat punchlines. Um, and, and, and in the culture of Edinburgh... And it, I feel I, I feel I sort of tr- was. I'm lucky in that I have two worlds. In that I cut my my teeth on the stand up circuit at Jonglers, and 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 clubs like that where you're not you're not really permitted to have flights of fan- fancy. Um, but then I do, you know, Edinburgh shows where the 
the fashion to an extent is um hey it doesn't make you laugh out loud but it's just so interesting like having a nice warm bath that kind of thing and which is fine and perfect and i adore shows that are like that as well but then what happens talking about a divides that aren't really there there was then a bit of a backlash against club comics and club comics would go yeah but they can't nail jonglers and the sort of like flights of fancy comics were like uh you know you're you play to stag and hen nights which i think is a very noble thing to do and i think um i got very annoyed for a while because i felt there was such a snobbery towards club comedians of which i worked so hard to become i am so proud I am so proud of the fact that I can walk on stage in front of a beery, leery audience and make the fuckers laugh and be that gladiatorial comedian. And I worked hard to be that way. And I feel that um, circuit stand-ups, we're at the, we are at the front line of show business. You know, we're the foot soldiers. You know, we take a hit for the team. We've, we've allowed this, this whole industry to become so big <laughs> that you can do you know 20 minutes of gentle laughs about you know the cushion you made earlier today which again is a beautiful thing <laughs> art is art okay i'm yep. not i would never put myself in a position to judge someone else's art form but i i i will challenge anyone who gets snobby about the circuit and being a club comic and it's it's used as a derogatory word um and i think if you use it as a derogatory term you're not a stand-up comedy fan you don't know your art you don't know what the fuck you're talking about and this is where i'm getting angry and i'm not going to put this anger in any of my show <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to put this anger in your show no i hate it's it's really yeah it's, it's better now, but for a time there was this, this divide that didn't really exist. And, and, yeah. and yet comics are pitted against comics. What you do isn't comedy. No, sure. what you do isn't comedy. We're all doing comedy. Shut up. Uh, beautiful woman, um, um, Roisin. Mm-hmm. Roisin um, Connerty. Uh, she said what she really made me laugh on. She goes, oh, I'm getting sick of people going on about they don't like club stand-ups. It's like, look, I don't particularly like jazz. I don't bang on about why I don't like jazz. Oh, I don't like jazz. That's fine. You go and listen to, to something else then. Mm. Let us listen to jazz. And, and that's how I, that she, she did that perfectly. It's like we're all in the same universe of live work. Yeah. And there is absolutely no reason to uh, degrade one area of it. Let's just, before we, before we finish, let's just talk about the book because the reviews have been unbelievable. I haven't read the book. I haven't had mm-hmm. time to read the book. Um, it's been released. Has no, it? 28th these are, these are of July, yeah. I couldn't have read the book. I don't need to feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> but the reviews are eye-poppingly, oh my God, how, is, how are you managing to write this evocatively? I mean, you, you, you must it's be pretty excited away. about it. I have to tell you. Because this, this, is, this is a novel. So there's a lot of uh, comedy books out at the moment. People yeah. are kind of, I wonder if there is a sort of a, oh, you can't sell DVDs anymore. Let's get a book out there. There seems to be an awful lot of comedians' books. Mm. But this isn't autobiographical. no. And it's not, I mean, it's a novel. It's a, a proper novel. novel. It's a proper Your novel. first proper novel. My first proper novel. And I don't, you know that thing, comedians hate it when other comedians retweet twi- um, praise, right? Yeah. I've, I've never really needed to do a stand-up because my reviews are always a bit like, yeah, she's just doing her <laughs> thing. But I've been retweeting stuff about my book because um, it's overwhelmed me. The response of readers has really overwhelmed me. 
Um, and I want to tell people about it because I want people to read my book. Um, and I'm really confident about it. And I, um, I'm just stunned and I'm so excited about it coming out because I think if, if people like it and they read it, then I might get another book deal and I'll get to write another novel. And that's a dream come true that I, that, that, that seemed as realistic as going to the moon writing a novel. I've always wanted to do it since I was a child and I feel with stand up and the book, I feel I have kept my promises to 10 year old me. Like, I'll get you there, don't worry. I'll get you writing a book because writing a book was my absolute dream come true and to have people read it and connect with it. Weird thing though, Stuart, I know we're, we're rushed for time now, but when people write a nasty thing about my stand-up, it hurts my feelings. But if people don't like my book, I mean, I haven't read a bad review about this book, but I have about my old book. They're not, not horrible, but if people go, no, it wasn't for me, I go, oh, well, you didn't get it. Oh, poor you. You didn't get it. I feel the it. same about this podcast. Isn't, I, it, like, isn't Taking a thing away from it being you yeah. allows you to just believe in it in a different way. Yeah. And go, oh, you can, you can take it or leave it. It's yeah. totally fine. Doesn't, doesn't affect me in the way that if yeah. you went, you stand up shit, you'd be mortified, you'd yeah. be crushed. But that's something I got by um, having a chat with Dr. Brown after one of his shows uh, where he says, oh, and, and I, you know, he was telling me about the process of building his show. And he goes, and I did it in New Zealand and the audience didn't get it. And I love that. He, they didn't get it. Not like I bombed, I died, yeah, I was right. shit. They didn't get it. So that's my new um, way to describe my <laughs> death. They didn't get it tonight. Pull them. <laughs> Maybe they'll get it tomorrow. Maybe I'll get it tomorrow. Did you sit down on day one and go, I'm just trying to visualise what it looks like to start writing a book. Mm. Did you sit down at a computer with a blank document open and go, day one, I'm going to write my book now. Begin. No. I didn't write anything for ages. I put a sticker on my laptop saying it's not going to write itself. No, I um, tried to write a novel a while ago and was laughed out of town. Um, it was awful. It was... Um, oh, it was not good. Go on, go on. What was it? It was... It was... Oh, it was just... Like, I went out with this rock star and it was about a girl that went out with a rock star. It was shit. It was so bad. And I was pregnant and I cannot be creative in any shape or form when I was pregnant. And what happened was um, I was pregnant and alone. Um, I was going to have the baby on my own and I'm supporting my son on my own as well. And my motivation, I'm ashamed to admit, was I could get a big chunk of change for this. And this could sort me out financially. And I learnt a very harsh lesson that if 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 um, money is your motivation for a creative work, it will be shit. But I forgive myself because I was pregnant and alone and really like, what the fuck am I going to do? So I left it and then I had an idea. I had an idea and I had a storyline and the begin, middle and end was already settled in my head. And I spoke to the publishers and I wrote the treatment. I wrote the first chapter and I knew exactly where I was going. What I've learned in this business is no one goes, let's give her a go. People <laughs> want to follow your own game plan for yourself. If you look, when I went to see my um, agent, my late agent, Addison Cresswell, when I moved to Off the Curb, who absolutely changed my life, um, what was it, 10 years ago, I had, I'd been to see other agents 
and they've and gone well you know i just want to work i just want to do stand up but with him i went i want this i want this i want this and i saw the bigger picture and he took me on and i've learned that you've got to see the bigger picture and people have got to see you seeing the bigger picture in order to take a punt on you um you know trying to ride along on your sort of you know like a cup of tea <laughs> wasn't really getting me anywhere uh yeah it's a lot of growing up to do some people are like that at 20 blimey amazes me when i see comics that just come out of the egg fully formed amazes me so that was Shappy. thank you so much to her uh, thanks as ever to Johnny Mouncer uh, currently editing and uploading this show Nathan Wood our editor and uploader currently resting uh, thank you to uh, Emily Crosby my chief minion for logging purposes and uh, thanks to you for listening and for rating this show on iTunes and subscribing to it on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts and sharing it with friends telling people about it and doing your best to get other people hooked um that's the whole of the shappy episode but remember the russell howard extras and other extras besides also my debut album is still currently available for free at comedianscomedian.com forward slash extras if you would like to download break glass in case of emergency and get a little bit of an injection of optimism into your creative life uh, that is a compilation of some of the finest most uplifting sentiments from my various guests over the last few years uh, all set to original music by steve dunn that is available at comedianscomedian.com forward slash shop uh, where you can also purchase my penultimately recent penultimately album uh, that was called extra life and uh, an hour the new show will be of all the most recent show will be available soon somewhere that's all of that i'll uh, i'll chat to those of you if you're a horse stick around if not that concludes the podcast i'll speak to you soon <sighs> <There's>, <laughs> that, that should be the code shouldn't it <sighs> you can feel me relaxed the admin is done uh the admin is never done so much admin edinburgh prep uh, let's start on a positive note it's my first Father's Day. I'm recording this on Father's Day on Sunday. And um, I always... I think my dad had always considered Father's Day to be sort of... Oh, it's all been invented by card companies. So he wouldn't ever make a fuss or sort of want anything particular done for him. And I always thought that was right. But not now. Now and now I qualify. I think Father's Day is a very important thing. My, uh, my baby son uh, sent me a very lovely card uh, with his mother's handwriting. But it's very sweet. Um, and uh, we are having an absolutely rare old time. We had our first family holiday recently, um, which is just incredible to spend time with your family and go, oh, you guys, yes, you're the reason I'm doing all of this. Maybe I should run around a bit less and spend more time with you. Uh, Don't panic if my management are listening to this. I'll still work hard, don't worry. I've got to feed the family. Um, But uh, yeah, that was absolutely gorgeous. I want to talk to you about... Well, I'm going to be at Glastonbury. If you're going to be at the Glastonbury Festival of Performing Arts this year, this week, uh, I'm going to be there. I'm comparing in the cabaret stage, which is a great big, big top where they do lots of stand-up. That's in the theatre and circus fields. And I'm going to be there doing the early shift on Sunday. So from lunchtime, I think, from 11 for a few hours, I'll be in the cabaret stage. I will also be dragging the Boutros and his mum all over the site in one of those those awful little carts that I swore I'd never get. Hey, I, uh, I I came to a conclusion about the old school stuff just while I'm just while I'm on the subject of things I swore I'd never do. Um, thanks to some secret business I've been enjoying with uh, uh, a friend of mine, listener to the show, who got in touch. 
we've been working on my head in quite a fun way. And uh, I think I'm going to get back in touch with the school because uh, this, well, you know, this, this came up recently. Do I, do I, I do I, sh- sh- what's the word? Shed? No. Uh, what was scorched earth? <laughs> something about something, some blank all contact. Do I break off all contact? Blank, blank. Um, with my old school who got in touch and said, hey, do you want to, you know, they've said over a few times over the last couple of years, they've said, uh, hey, do you want to come and give a talk to some students and stuff? And I've always gone, no, I hate you. I hated it. No. And uh, this uh, chat with a friend of mine has made me realise that actually the main reason I didn't want to go back, given that I love giving people advice and I love the idea of maybe saying helpful stuff to kids who are having as tougher time of it as I felt I did um I really want to but I felt like I'd be breaking a promise to my 11 year old or 14 year old self and uh the question put to me was yeah but if that 14 year old self knew what you'd known what you know now what would he feel then and I sort of thought yeah he'd, he'd probably uh he'd probably go yeah go on mate it's all right <laughs> come back i think my 14 year old self would have appreciated some bell end like me turning up and going there is hope it's just you know were i to put in anything in the diary don't don't you worry i will keep you posted if anything like that crops up were i to put anything like that in the diary i suppose that my fear would be <clears throat> excuse me my fear would be that i would go in and just like i would find it impossible not to throw my notes off whatever lectern I had and scream at them, get out, get out. Um, I'm sure I could muster the self-control not to do that. I'm sure I could. What else was I thinking about? Um, something else occurred to me. I was going to talk to you about... Um, screaming get out at things I'm going back to my old college which I enjoyed very much uh, and I'm doing a gig there I did a gig there last year and this is a classic I mean we'll call it a corporate it wasn't a corporate but it, you know it's a, a bit of stand up which has to be very specifically tailored to a bunch of you know not, not the students the sort of the, the staff the faculty and uh, I had a blinder of a gig last time properly t- I mean talk about a bit of local 10 minutes of in jokes about the uh uh, the staff and the building and how it's moved on and the stuff I remember had an absolute whale of a time there very nervous still I mean a kind of oh god I hope I don't sod this up and um, <clears throat> it went really well they've invited me back I'm doing it again in a couple of weeks and I've used up all my local so what am I going to do now I've got to go back and manufacture They'd, imagine that it would be like because I've used up all the stuff I've got to say it's like going back and doing a gig at someone else's old college oh Christ what am I going to do Anyway, my point is, uh, I'm going to the Glastonbury Festival, and given the current subject matter of the show, which I don't want to give away too much, but roughly it's about moving and spawning and wondering whether or not I'm still wild, (laughs) which even saying out loud sounds nuts. There's there's a premise from the show which I'm working on, which is... um, is a premise from my life. There's a thing from my life which I'm working on as a premise for the show, which is simply this. I, I, I've narrowed it down to one party. <laughs> like I, I'm sure I spent my adolescence going, oh god, I'm going to be wild one day, and I'm sure I spent the last few years going, oh, I used to be, used to be a bit more hardcore than this. Used to be a bit wild. I think I've narrowed it down to one weekend. I think I've narrowed it down to one party where 
everyone got off their heads and everyone snogged everyone else and we all joined a band and then the band broke up and we all did a bank robbery and then we rang in sick for work and 10 people died it, it, do you know what I mean it was one of those it was like a big legendary warehouse party and I just got this you know for the, the sake of the, the comic conceit is that that was it that was the time <laughs> those were my wild days so I've got some peripheral stories in the show about being at festivals at a lot of the, uh, Glastonbury is kind of the, the main one in my life as many others and so I'm now in this awful position of going to Glastonbury this week thinking well I mean I'm just going to try and stay open to the universe but it, it would be pretty great if something funny happened that would tie up the three themes of my show so now I'm going to be nudely dragging my baby in this little cart sort of little jalopy bumping over the mud going hey does anyone does anyone want to interact with me in a way that will help me resolve a show god this is worse than that time I went and did a did a first aid course probably 30% so that I could get some material out of it and it worked I did to get a really good routine out of it but um you know it's uh I think the thing to do obviously the thing to do is just go there enjoy yourself I mean it's going to be weird being at a festival with a baby he's only he's sort of almost five months now he'll be bang on five months there actually and uh that's that's going to be weird enough. It's going to be a very different time. I absolutely cannot wait to get up with him at six o'clock in the morning when he gets up, pop him in the papoose and walk around looking at, and uh, this is a Chris Morris phrase, I make no bones about that, the feckless dregs. I cannot wait to wander around the place looking, look, look at that incredibly spangled person covered in mud and glitter. Don't look in his eyes, Boutros. Don't look in his eyes. Uh, I think that's going to be a huge amount of fun. But um, yes, maybe if something... I've got to grow up. I've got to. I've got to. That's not the show. This is me talking now. I've got to grow up because I can't go around waiting for a thing to happen. What does Pasco say? Pasco, that interview I did with her years ago. We must get her on again. She said very smart things, and I've started listening to her reading the audiobook of her new book, Animal, uh, which is all about uh, feminism and sexuality and psychology and and uh, human animals. And it's absolutely brilliant so far. So snag onto that. And I tell you what, if you wanted to buy it via the Amazon affiliates link on the on the website, then if you can find it, good luck to you. Um, but uh, what did Pasco say? Yeah, it's not about having things happen. It's about describing a feeling incredibly well. But you know, it could be complete minutiae of your life as long as you can describe it in detail. And I do keep trying to do that. But at the same time, it would be bloody great if I could either have a funny thing happen at Glastonbury, which somehow counterpoints the fact that I'm getting old and uh, can't cope with enjoying myself anymore, and or gives me a punchline to uh, a really good routine I've got about watching the band Bastille, where all the jokes are good, but they get their final punchline's a little flat. I've said too much. <laughs> That'll do for now. Um, oh, Jesus Christ, let's remain. Please, please, let's remain. There's no point emailing in. By the time you've heard this, the vote will be done. And if you're a Brexit person, I, you know, I don't want to be one of those wishy-washy liberals who doesn't care about your opinion, but obviously it's better not to be at war with the rest of Europe. Why are our memories so short? Let's just be in the gang, can't we? Can't we be in the gang and move forwards rather than retreating into some awful crumbly fantasy of what Britain used to be. Oh Christ. Please let's remain. Speak to you soon. (laughs) 